You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Monday, Canada. How's everybody doing? We got a great show for you today. We got a great week of shows. Of course, it is a big week for your pocketbook because it is budget week. We're going to talk about that. In fact, the governor of the former governor of the Bank of Canada, Stephen Polaz, is coming up next. So you can find out a bit about your money. Do you care about your taxes? Do you care how much money your government spends? I do. I'm going to get to that. Why some people say, oh, I don't want to talk about that. I don't want to talk about budgets. Like it doesn't matter. Oh, I'm not into that. It's kind of interesting because budgets matter. And, and when you say that, it's like saying broccoli matters. But that's not what I'm talking about. So let's say every morning someone went into your wallet and took out 35% of your money or 45% or depending on your income, 50%. Would you care why? Would you care? I would. And I said, don't worry, I'm spending it. On stuff that you're going to benefit, schools and hospitals and roads and protection and security. In general, that sounds good, but I kind of want to know why. Like, is there any way you could take less and get the same result? Or do you need more? Maybe you need more. Maybe you need less. I would care, do you? The numbers are kind of staggering. How much do you think... Just out of interest. Like, we have a $2 trillion economy. How much do you think the federal government, the provincial government where you live, and the municipal governments all together spend every year? Well, a couple years ago, it surpassed a trillion dollars. A trillion dollars. Now, that's not just the... The federal budgets are usually about, I don't know, $330, $350 billion, but these ones are bigger now. Big time issues. Like, they've already booked spending on child care. You've seen that. There's now national child care. The government bought a pipeline, so they could build TMX. That's already booked. But there's new programs. This deal with the NDP means there's going to be dental care for a certain group of people. Maybe PharmaCare. There's going to be new money for housing. There's $9 billion. They got a book on green initiatives because they got their emissions target by 2030. There's got to be defense spending, right? Russia, tax Ukraine. So I care about it. And it's what's fascinating to me is when people are like, oh, I haven't budgeted. Like, the only reason that government exists is we elect 338 people to, to manage a couple things. To keep you safe, that's the first thing. That costs. It's like insurance. And to spend your money. Make the laws that allocate money. I mean, spending money is so important that they call it in government supply. It's the only votes in a minority government when they ask for new money that can overthrow a government. And so this is like the most important week in politics. I mean, the elections are important. But how they're spending your money. 
Now, you're a citizen of this country. You have a right to say, spend less, spend more. So we're going to dig into that with the governor of the bank. And I always, I'm always fascinated when, I, I think the reason people don't care is it's complicated. I actually think, and, and there's, a, there's a journalist at the Globe and Mail, a great journalist named Steve Chase. You probably read Steve. Steve and I were talking in the hallway the other day. And we were talking about what's coming, and Steve said to me, you know what I, I believe, Evan? I believe that every profession is a conspiracy against the layperson. Meaning, professions try to be arcane. They try to be complicated. They try to be, they, they purposely try to make it hard for you to understand so the layperson doesn't say, what the hell's actually going on? They're literally whether it's the lawyers or whether it's the finance people, they're trying to make it sound complicated. So people are like, I don't want to feel stupid. I don't want to ask. I don't know the basics. I don't want to feel dumb. It's too complicated. And in fact, the truth is a lot of journalists don't understand finance. There's a lot of economic illiteracy. Like ask a journalist, what's the difference between fiscal policy and monetary policy? I don't know. I don't cover that stuff. How do you not cover that stuff? It's the oh, it's the whole thing. It's like saying I cover sports, but I don't understand the business of sports. Well, if you're a sports journalist, you have to understand the cap, the salary cap. You've got to understand how much you pay people. You've got to, everything's about the money. There's only one thing, follow the money, follow the money. And so we're going to follow the money for you. So that's what we'll do this week. And we'll start things off on our follow the money week with the governor of the Bank of Canada. He's coming up next. So we will follow the money for you this week. And, and the, I promise you this, A, we're going to make it interesting, B, we're going to make it comprehensible, because I will not suffer the jargon of the fake, you know, the, the priestly class that tries to keep the rest of us ignorant because they're going to throw around terms that we don't understand. We're going to translate it into terms that you understand without, without dumbing it down, without slogans, without oversight, just to make it so we understand what's going on, so we, you and I, can ask the right questions of our political leaders. And whether you're in the province of Ontario today where the price of gas is going to go down because they're going to slash the gas tax 5%, we got to understand inflation. we got to understand where these revenues are coming from. we got to understand what governments are doing. So we're going to pull back the curtain and find out if there's genuinely a good machine working for us, good people, or it's a Wizard of Oz and it's all an illusion. So, so we'll do that. And the first guy that's going to help us do that is the former governor of the Bank of Canada. He's just written a new book about this. And we got lots more. Actually, we'll end the show with the mystery of the Sasquatch. Um, and we're also going to go to Ukraine where there has been terrible human rights violations. So we got the whole spectrum for you today. Um, I wanted to follow up because last week I told you it was my son's last hockey game after 12 years of coaching and, and assistant coaching him. And, and uh, my daughter and son both are it doesn't matter if they both played sports, but if you're kids or when you, or if you're still a student, you played a sport or maybe you were on the newspaper or the theater or the robotics club. It doesn't matter. Joining a team is so important. Anyway, it was his last game. They played a tournament, uh, two games on Saturday. We lost, uh, which was, we are, I think we were the best team in the league if we played like a team, but we often didn't play like a team. Maybe that's a coaching issue. I'm not going to throw the boys under the bus. Probably our fault. Um, but they're great kids. They're great young men because they're young men now. But 80% of the team, it was their last ho- hockey game. They're all going to university next year. And it was emotional. 
And it was emotional for the coaches, the dads. Um, I, I say the dads because in this team, the dads were the coaches, often their moms. My, my wife coached my daughter in, in Ringette. And many of the moms are involved in the tournament, in the team. But it was the dads coaching. And it was emotional. So after the game, uh, we were eating pizza in the locker room. And the coaches spoke. We all said some words. And then we had the boys, the young men stand up, 80% of them who, who had just played their final game. A lot of them are going to play, you know, rugby and football, and they're still playing other sports. But this is the hockey was important, and we'd been coaching them in this. And, and they all spoke. And they all spoke about how much a team meant to them and what they learned about leadership and losing and winning. And, and lifting each other up. And it was really emotional. I got emotional. The other coach, Frankie, got emotional. Nez got emotional. I know Mike Mike couldn't be there because one of his kids was sick. Uh, he's a great coach. and But it was the, the young men that spoke, my son and all of our sons who spoke. And it, it was unbelievable. And as I said, I always coach a famous coach who said, how do, how do kids spell love? T-I-M-E, time. Spend time with them, be there with them, walk beside them, coach them. There's nothing like it. And uh, you can send me, you, you all sent me beautiful texts last week at 71010 about your time on a team. But I just said to, to my kids, thank you. It's been nothing short of a pleasure watching you play sports. And please always try to join things. Being a part of a team will change your life. I got to take a break. The governor of the Bank of Canada is up next. Helping you through these unique times. This is the Evan Solomon Show. Thursday's budget day. And of course, to prepare for it, I thought, you know, are you worried about inflation? Check. Are you worried about deficits? Check. What about the liberal deal with the NDP for more program spending? Check. Now, look, what you should know is inflation hurts you, but governments actually help them. Uh, they, they, they get big, big revenues. Uh, tax comes in. And it, it, so you should expect, you know, because the price of Commodities has gone up. Um, you should really expect this government to brag about how great it is and they're making their, their revenues are up and their debt to GDP ratio is low. But be careful. They're going to book long term programs. So I decided to ask the former governor of the Bank of Canada, Stephen Polos, about that. And I asked him, how does the finance minister balance the pressure to avoid record spending deficits at a time of high inflation and all these spending pressures and priorities she's got. I also, by the way, asked him about crypto and Pierre Polyev's advocacy for it. But I, first, let's start with how does she balance the competing pressures to spend and to save? Well, it's a very difficult uh, balancing act for sure. The good news is that the economy has delivered very strong revenues, both through strong economic growth and high inflation. Both of those things will reduce the debt line as a share of the economy. Uh, quite noticeably, and that means that the, the whole situation is more fiscally sustainable uh, than it would have appeared only a few months ago. So at least they have the ability to make 
choices. They're not under constraint in the sense that they have no choice. So, so we should expect a short-term pop, that, that the deficits won't be as big, the revenues will be up. Just so people know, inflation actually helps, hurts the consumer, yes. but it helps, helps the government because of price increases, they get more tax revenue, more wage revenue. So they actually are going to benefit mm -hmm. a bit secretly from, from a problem for consumers. Well, the fiscal guardrail, if you like, has been put as the ratio of debt to the economy, debt to GDP. And so that ratio will fall because of the strong inflation and strong economic growth uh, relative to the line that was laid out before. So that means that based on the previous guardrail, you'll feel like you have more room to maneuver to deal with some of these pressures, but at the same time make the kind of conscious choices you need to make for the longer term sustainability. Responsibility, I would say, rather than just pure sustainability. But how does the finance minister balance a temporary pop, because we're supposed to hear that inflation is supposed to be temporary if you yeah. believe some forecasts, yeah. and yet permanent spending, permanent dental spending, yeah. permanent defense spending, permanent environment spending. Like when you got long term programs, does that lead to structural deficits? Well, the, the temporary pop you're talking about is in growth rates. But that, what it means is that the level of nominal income, or everybody's income in the economy, is higher forever, not just temporarily. And so those ratios are improved permanently. It gives them more room to maneuver at this stage. But at this stage, I think what we need to be thinking about is what's the longer-term risk that they face? That we have, say, another episode like we just went through. Could we afford that? Those things need investments in resilience so that we have more of a buffer for the future. So it's that kind of choice which needs to be registered there, balancing those new initiatives, which have a lot of merit, just as childcare had a lot of merit. Well, those things uh, matter to the economy and it can actually foster economic growth in the background. Okay, I mean the concern with the Liberals is that every time they get a sunny forecast, they burn the raincoats and then you never, you know, you get soaked on the next storm. Are you concerned about that? Well, that's what I meant by resilience. Uh, I feel like uh, at the moment, uh, the notion of sustainability is kind of a minimalist uh, guardrail. That it's what we can get away with as opposed to the responsible kind of balancing of risks for the future. Uh, I think uh, it is time for us to be considering, you know, building our buffers again like we had before we went in, into the pandemic. We had really excellent fiscal situation and it really paid off for us. So that's, that's the kind of risk management that has to be done within a budget. Can they do anything to lower inflation, not just the general inflation rate, but the housing inflation rate? Because housing is going to be a big issue. Well, uh, we don't, you know, certainly there's nothing you can do to reverse inflation today. It's mostly being driven by, by the commodity prices and those supply chain concerns. Those things will moderate over time. But the, the idea is not to add even more excess demand pressure to the system at a stage when it's at full capacity. We already have almost a million vacancies in the labor market. So we need to see that kind of cool off. And uh, that will happen, I think, gradually as immigration is picking up and people come in and fill those empty jobs. And at the same time as the growth rate in the economy slows. Okay, you're no longer the governor of the bank, so right. you can actually give some advice here. Yeah. If, you, if you could give advice to Christopher Freeland, given the, the economic uncertainty, which is what your book's all about, there's a consequential moment for a budget. What advice would you give her? Uh, take the opportunity, the gift that's been given here, to build some more buffers so that we're more prepared for the future. And yes, I understand these, the desire to improve the social aspects 
of the Canadian economy. Those are those are laudable goals, but uh, and I don't really know how much they'll cost. But they need to be at least financed in in the longer term. They can't just come out of thin air. D uh, defense. They're talking about two percent of our GDP to defense. That's yeah. another twenty to twenty-five billion dollars, according to the parliamentary budget office. Yes. Can the economy afford that? Well, I think if uh, democratically people believe we need a stronger defense posture, I think they should be prepared to pay for it. It's not something, again, that we can do out of thin air. Finally, uh, again, central banks and your former central banker are a key feature in, in Pierre Polyever's campaign, and he had a big rally, 1,000 people in Ottawa recently, and he, and he said, look, Canada should become the crypto capital of the world because Canadians need to be in charge of their own money supply, and he used the phrase... You know, through Bitcoin, you could opt out of inflation. Hmm. How do you interpret what he means by opt out of inflation by using Bitcoin and controlling our own money? What's your response to that? Well, uh, no, uh, because Bitcoin is not a legitimate uh, transactor uh, vehicle. Uh, it's highly variable, so the price of things that you would buy would be varying all the time. That's uh, of course uh, digital currencies in a broader concept. They're they're definitely coming, but they'll be probably official ones. You know that, that the same kind of money that we use every day that's in our pocket. Uh, but opting out of inflation, I just don't understand that concept. Uh, when a price of oil doubles, how do you opt out of that? Okay, I got to leave it there. But big budget Thursday. Your perspective always helpful, uh, Stephen Polos. Thank you, sir. That was a pleasure. Thanks, Evan. So that is the former governor of the Central Bank, Stephen Polos. I'd love to get your thoughts next. You know, when you actually ask people, what do you want to see in a budget? Usually, people say, you know, less spending or more spending. Something to benefit me, but not you. I get it. Self-interest rules. If you need dental care, you'd like to see it. If you don't need it, you think it's too much. You want defense, but you realize it's $20 billion, something's got to go, or you just rock up deficits. So what is it? Instead of just asking what's on your Santa Claus wish list, what I'll do next is I want to open the phones, because this is a big week. I don't know about you, but I don't think anyone's ever accused politicians of listening too much. Maybe they do a little, but let's listen, because this is our show. This is, belongs to you. So 1-855-633-1010, 1-855-633-1010, or 7-1010. I will do questions and concerns. Do you have questions about the budget? Maybe your provincial budgets, maybe your federal budget. Do you have concerns? Too much spending, not enough spending. Questions about defense, questions about the environment. Questions and concerns about the budget, understanding the federal budget. I think we should drill down. I, I don't know about you. I care when someone asks me for my money so they can do something with it. I want to know what they're doing. And it better be good. And it better be efficient. And I want to understand it. I don't want to just read the fine print. It's like, what, what are they doing? Like, you want to spend what? You want to spend $19 billion on jets? I want to know that. I want to read the fine print. Don't you? So what I'll do is you can ask me some questions. We can have a conversation. Questions and concerns. Your top concerns. By the way, maybe you want to talk about the crypto stuff that the governor was just talking about. The Globe and the Star wrote big takeouts today on the uh, 
advocacy for crypto. 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Questions and concerns. We're talking your money next. Stay with us on The Evan Solomon Show. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the program. Here's what's coming up. So here's why you got to stick around. Um, is the government about to regulate news? Well, they're going to bill. They're going to put a bill out probably tomorrow. So we're going to dig into that next. Literally, we'll dig into. Does it? Fu- By the way, we don't get any funding here. People say, "Oh, Evan, you get fun-. no." CTV does not. We're not taking that. We're not eligible for that. We're not print. We don't take it. But we'll 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 dig into that in a minute. Um, we'll talk about the price of gas and if you're about to maybe buy an EV, is that even possible? We'll talk to a blogger in Russia who is risking her life to speak out about the invasion. This is like, it's going to blow your mind. And then we're going to talk about someone who's searching for Sasquatch and getting university to help him. Like, this is cool. So we got a lot on the go. But your call's on the budget. Budget is Thursday. Questions and concerns. I think we got to talk more about your money, don't you? I do. It's our money. We should listen. So let's go. One eight five five six three three ten ten. Let's get at her. Peter Patter, and seven ten ten. Are we ready for our first budget call of the week? And who is going to be the lucky guess on that? Uh, I am trying to find out. Nick, who do we have here? I don't see anybody. Oh, I, I just, I, something, somebody just uh, popped up in my, I'll get a text here. I just, I think my, Nick just texted me here because I think somebody just burned out. Oh, I got it. Mike in Montreal. I just lost my whole feed there. Just burned out. Mike, how you doing? Very good. Hello, Evan. I'm the popper. Here's a way that a middle-class individual can afford an inflated price for a home today to live in and compete against the speculators driving up prices. A full tax deduction for interest on the mortgage. This will enable them to pass a bank stress test, make the down payment, and have money saved each year to maintain it. On the other hand, the speculators, foreign or domestic, buying for profit but not intending to live in it, pay a 10% surcharge, which goes to the city or province on the right social and affordable housing. What do you think? Okay. Uh, in Canada, interest on a mortgage for a principal private um, residence currently is not tax deductible, as you know. And capital gains on a house when you sell your primary residence is tax exempt. By the way, in the U.S., it's different. You could do that. Uh, you could basically have a tax deduction on your mortgage payment on your primary house, maybe if it's means tested uh, for certain income levels and maybe up to a certain um, mortgage level. What you don't want to do, and I think it's a really interesting idea because housing affordability is key, Mike, is you don't want to incentivize people if it's a tax deductible mortgage to crank to then take out big fat mortgages and what will that do run up the price of houses because everyone's going to take out mortgages that's tax deductible and then that creates a, a government funded bubble so it's it's complicated i totally get what you mean but um it, it 
you know, if my mortgage was tax deductible, don't you think you'd be incentivized to take out a bigger mortgage? So, Evan, I forgot to say, and there is no capital gains tax when selling. This is the only thing that you're permitted to deduct because it's big time money. And that's the only way we can afford it up front and afford to keep that home. And it can be done, and it's going to be coming because otherwise the guy on the street can't afford anything. Great call, Mike, man. Let, let, let's, let me read two texts, and then I'm going to go to John, also in Montreal. Evan, too much spending, no thought about wealth creation, just wealth distribution, which makes us all poor. The only re- increase we should have for defense, we should be buying the F-15, not the F-35. Oh, interesting, Al. Um, yeah, there's a lot of wealth distribution. Yes. Um, the question is, what is wealth creation? I'll just, Al, I'm going to ask a question to you and you can text me back. Some governments will say wealth distribution, like let's say childcare is actually wealth creation. Studies have shown that every time you put a dollar into childcare, you get $7 out. Uh, you get women in the workforce, some men, more, more men in the workforce. So it actually can be a wealth creation. So it's not quite as simple, but I think your bigger point, which is, Productivity and wealth creation is key. Uh, John, go for it. So we had a pandemic 100 years ago, and then we had something called the Roaring Twenties. So I think they were called the Roaring Twenties because, you know, the economy really went crazy and there was a lot of inflation. So I'm wondering what's going to happen now. Yeah, yeah two, two, two things, and I appreciate the call. Um, some. We, are, we do have a kind of a frothy recovery if the baseline is two years ago in the sense that things really crashed. Um, the Roaring Twenties slightly different because um, we had just, it was a post-World War period, right, 1918. So it wasn't so much the, the, the Spanish flu, uh, which decimated a lot of people, but the Roaring Twenties went, um, it was kind of a post-war boom time. Um, I don't think we're going to see this. We're going to see big pop, but we don't have that. Um, the other thing I should say is, remember, that was the gold standard. And one of the reasons why that crashed when the stock market crashed and, and then that led to the Great uh, Depression um, was that there was no good monetary policy to smooth it out. And, and governments refused to go into debt because they couldn't spend because they were on the gold standard. Um, there was not what they call fiat currency. So, so. To be fair, these are complicated um, answers. Um, I think that the central bank is concerned about inflation, but we're running at inflation rates that could be running at, you know, three to five percent, um, which is higher than the two percent for the next year or two. And there's the war, there's supply chain. But it's not crazy. We're not talking about, you know, Great Depression levels of inflation. So I, I'm not saying it's not hurting a lot of industries, but it's not wild. You're not going to get 18% infl- in interest rates. You're going to get 3% interest rates. Um, Ethan, go for it. Maybe Ethan's not there. Ethan, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, go for Dad, it, I'm Ethan. here now. Uh, I have a quick question. Why do you think the, uh, the governments are so... Uh, uh, why are they not tapping into the revenue and the infrastructure of oil and gas industry that has uh, proved itself over the last century and a half or so that has really good environmental policies uh, compared to the rest of the world? 
when we're not quite there with the electric yet. I'm all for electric vehicles and electric infrastructure, but we, you know, when it comes to sourcing the batteries, when it comes to disposal of them, when it comes to charging the actual vehicles and stuff, we're, we're not quite there yet. So why is there not more of a gradual transition than this sort of harsh one where we're kind of closing down all, all our oil and gas infrastructure and tax revenue? Right. That's my question. Yeah, it's a great why question. Do, why do you think they're doing it? Yeah, I, my question back to you is, are they closing it down? Um, uh, there's a, literally a question. They bought a pipeline, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, for $7 billion. It's The cost is $21 billion, and they're pushing it through. So they're not actually closing down that infrastructure. They're building more. There is a big oil and gas decision that they've just delayed, but I think they're going to green light it, the Bay de Nord in Newfoundland and Labrador. So are they closing down oil and gas infrastructure? Um, they're certainly putting a big, tight cap on emissions. Um, I don't know if that is, quote, closing it down. There's going to be a need for fossil fuel, but the transition, look, the environment minister told me they're, they're talking about modular nuclear reactions. They're talking about LNG. So I don't know if they're closing that down, just to be fair. Now, uh, you know, this government, even the Trudeau government, supported the Keystone XL pipeline. It was Biden that shut that down. So what they did is they, they did cut one pipeline in northern B.C., but they bought another. So, look, I just think that's overstating it. Um, they're they're hyper-interested um, in, in the transition to cleaner energy uh, because of climate change. Are they closing down? But I should say, environmentalists on the left are furious at the Liberal government because they're pushing through the Trans Mountain Pipeline. Evan, what's the point of a budget when you know they will overspend? Why can't it be a legal limit to spending, says Tony? I got 30 seconds. Um, what's a legal limit to spending? Um, municipalities are not allowed to run deficits, but I mean, you probably run a deficit yourself when you, you know, you mortgage, you, you take out a mortgage that finances your future. I think it's important that governments have that ability. I think it's more important that it's transparent so we can hold them to account for doing it, Tony. Oh, man, we could do this more. But we'll talk about the media fund in a minute. Stay with us. Sorting through the changes. Here's Evan Solomon. All right. I thought that the um, heritage minister today, Pablo Rodriguez, was going to table a little um, bill today, just a tiny little bill about supporting news organizations, but it's going to be tomorrow. Now, I don't know if you follow Canada Land, but Jesse Brown, who does great work, I'm going to just read you what he, what he said. In 2020, the Trudeau government started paying ongoing subsidies to newspapers. It was a trip into the unknown. How did government decide which papers to bail out and which to let die? What about independence of the press? And Jesse Brown goes on. Meet the five people who decides which news organizations are, quote, qualified Canadian journalism organizations, Jesse writes. It's a board of news experts, academics, and retired journalists paid by the government to read the articles of every news organization and decide which are up to snuff. In year one of the media, the board passed judgment on 159 news orgs, says Jesse. They released their annual report. How many news orgs of the 159 got in? Which ones? How much money did they get? Who got rejected and why? They are not telling, says Jesse. The names of the news organizations currently funded by taxpayers is a secret. The amount they received? 
a secret. The names of those rejected, a secret. The reasons why they rejected, a secret. The board meets in secret. There are no videos online. There are no minutes. Canadian newspapers said they die without them. The board decides which ones to qualify for. The rulings could mean life or death, says Jesse Brown of Canada Land. It's all kept secret. And then he quotes an interview I did with the minister. Don't blame the board, Jesse writes. It wasn't their choice. Government chose to put this program under the CRA where tax laws conceal the name of the beneficiaries. That broke an explicit promise of transparency that Minister Pablo Rodriguez made to Evan Solomon on question period. Here's the clip. Absolutely. 100% of the recommendations, as you were asking, will be, uh, will be public. It is because it's the, the whole intent of, of, of our action, make, uh, making sure that uh, this is done on an arm's length basis, respecting the experts that sit on those panels. Okay, so Jesse Brown, by the way, good work, Jesse. Uh, um, and I read Jesse's thread from Canada Land. I always like to credit whoever's really following this. No one does that as well as Canada Land. But uh, it may accept Michael Geist, the law professor at the University of Ottawa and the Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. You've been, you first of all, great to have you back on the show. I hope you're well. Geez, it's been a long time. Uh, tell people why this matters, Michael Geist. Well, I think it matters on a number of levels, both with respect to the program itself. And I agree with you. The, the podcast episode and the coverage from Canada Land has been exceptional on this issue. And so I think the you know he highlights some some real concerns right to the point where you were able to elicit out of the then heritage minister and now current heritage minister Rodriguez a commitment to transparency that simply hasn't happened. But I think even more than that, you just mentioned the legislation is forthcoming likely tomorrow now uh, in terms of a, a new media bailout. I, I actually think it's closer to a shakedown, quite frankly, and they're going to rely on some of the same kinds of non-transparent systems. And that has a real impact on independent of the press. It has an impact on, I think, competition and innovation in the news space. Uh, And I think in many ways, it actually will only heighten our reliance on some of these big tech companies. I'm speaking to Michael Geist. Someone in our last segment um, said to me um, that CTV does, they go, Evan, make a correction. Um, Bell does receive government money. Don't lie, Evan. CTV did get money. Bell did receive money. The information is available online, says Wes. I've got Michael Geist here. Wes, um, the what I mentioned is the media fund that we're talking about now, which is for newspapers. It's not for TV and it's not for radio. So we are not eligible for it. Bell particularly did get wage subsidy money. So yes, there's government money, but I'm not, I'm talking about the media fund money and Michael Geis can comment on that. Right. No, you're right. And I think it gets complicated pretty quickly. Companies like Bell did receive uh, support for uh, COVID-related support. That's not the same kind of support right. that we're talking about here. That support, the support that comes up um, through the Canada Land coverage, it was limited or is limited specifically to, to what we would see as newspapers, although they don't necessarily need to be physical. What the government has in mind, though, starting tomorrow with its bill, based on all reports, is to extend it to companies like Bell on the radio side, to CBC, and so that they are, when they're talking about a system whereby there would effectively be mandated payments from by companies like Facebook and Google, merely for the appearance of news on their platforms, the report suggests they envision this going beyond just newspapers to include uh, companies like Bell right. as well as CBC. Right. And that's why, Wes, just to be clear, I don't mind you... you um, Questioning that, it's an interesting question. It's not 
the fact yet. If this passes, the facts may change, but it hasn't passed. Speaking of Michael Geist, what is on the? What should people know about this? Uh, what has been the experience of the last two years of the media fund, and what tomorrow should people be waiting for? Like, what specifically are you watching for, Michael Geist? Yeah, that's a great question. I have to say that I think that the the stuff that we've seen over the last couple of years is still relatively early days. I mean, it's really just been one full cycle and they're moving into another cycle with some of this. And so in some ways, it's a bit early to judge, which I think highlights why the government's approach here is is particularly unfortunate. They came out with what was a controversial policy, remains a controversial policy, and, and one in which they haven't lived up to all the commitments, especially around transparency. And yet, rather than seeing it through and coming up up with a real assessment as to what the impact would be at a time when we're seeing more investment and innovation in this space, quite frankly, for many independent players. They're now jumping in, responding to what's been a significant lobbying campaign by certain companies and groups, uh, and coming up with this new mandate of basically payments by the internet platforms, all to be overseen by the CRTC. I think it's really troubling. I'm looking for whether or not they really are going to hand this over to the CRTC. Does it truly include the CBCs and Bells of the world? And is it a system that sort of throws away some of the privately negotiated deals that we've seen in favor of something that basically says, listen, you've got to pay full stop. It's simply a question of how much. This is different. Just so, I mean, There's a lot of going on here. Um, speaking of Michael Geist, this is different than the quote, what... I guess the critics have called the Internet censorship bill like uh, this is different than that, right? It is. You need a you need a, a true scorecard to keep track of all of these things. It is different. This is different from Bill C-11. So Bill C-11, the, the Online Streaming Act. This, I suspect, they will call the Online News Act, followed at some point in time by an Online Harms or Online Safety Act. So, yes, this is all part of a, a broader strategy to bring in new regulations when it comes to various Internet services. The concern on the streaming side, of course, involves companies like YouTube and TikTok and potential overreach there. This is one where I mean, there's not going to be a lot of people that are going to be particularly sympathetic to the Facebooks and Googles of the world. But Right. They, Some people may say they should pay and, and support Canadian uh, culture. But the question is, at what cost? Yeah, I think that you're right. I think there's there's a big question of cost in terms of independence of the press. I mean, we've seen some of these large newspapers literally just lobby on the front page of their papers in order to try to achieve these handouts and perhaps uh, skew their coverage in favor of trying to get this, these kinds of reforms. But I also think that at the end of the day, there's got to be a real policy rationale that's better than simply these companies are doing well, these other companies aren't doing so well, so we need to have a handout. Right. Because at this point in time, no one's really credibly arguing that these companies are actually using the news media. In fact, it's the media organizations themselves that typically yeah. post on these social media sites uh, and now want to be paid for that. Uh, Michael Geist, I, thank you. We're, when this gets tabled tomorrow, we'll have Michael Geist back so you get some facts. Thanks, Michael. We'll be right back. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. All right, let's get at it again. 1-855-633-1010. 1-855-633-1010. Or 71010. Price of gas. Price of gas. Man. Filled up the uh, the car. 
Well, we got the uh, the two kids. Even though hockey's over, and we'll talk about that again. But, you know, we had the hockey, the ringette, uh, traveling back and forth to Toronto to see my folks, um, moving a kid to Montreal. We got a dog that's giant. We've got a half lab, half St. Bernard puddle. So we have an SUV. And we pack it all the time. But, man, is it like it was like 112 bucks to fill up this weekend. 112 bucks. I, I don't ever remember going over 100. Now we're always over 100. Always. So the price of gas is crazy. And I know now, because there's an election in under nine weeks in Ontario, that Ontario says we will lower the gas tax if we're reelected. They say we're going to lower the gas tax by 5.7 cents a liter and the fuel tax by 5.3. And that's what they're going to say. And I think CBC broke that story. And then, of course, the, the, the federal government saying we need to incentivize the use of EVs and, and all governments are investing in battery technology and, and electric vehicles. And my wife and I are obviously, you know, when our lease is up on the SUV, we're a one-car family, we're like, we got to switch. Now, we used to have a diesel, but the price of diesel is bonkers, but we were getting great mileage on the highway. But now it's like EV, but then our friends just bought an EV and they were driving to Toronto, which we do all the time. And then, cause both their families are there and then they were stuck for like an hour and a half because it was cold and they had to charge and the charging station didn't work. And so they had to do a small plug in. And so they were at the side of the road for like, they're like, you know, if you really manage it and you don't turn the heat on too much, we're like, what the hell? Like, I love the idea of an electric vehicle as a city car, but they're like between 40 and 50,000 bucks. We're a one-car family. We don't have a little burnaround city car. one 1010 or 71010. Are you looking to purchase an EV? Is your next car an electric vehicle? one 1010 and 71010. Every car company is going to switch to EVs. We'll all be driving them soon. The torque is better. But the range, I've got range anxiety. Now, there is a study, one 1010 or 71010. I just I'm interested. Given the price of gas, given the future, are you going to buy an EV? Maybe you've got an EV and you're going to be one of these evangelists, of which I know many, who say it's way better. And the truth is there are new studies that say, despite the fact that an EV is bloody expensive to drive, if you can even get one with the supply chain issues, that Clean Energy Canada which works at the Simon Fraser University, released a report called True Cost that compared six electric vehicles with their gas-powered equivalents, as I quote the article. And they said over eight years, if you drive 20,000 kilometers a year, we always drive like 28,000, and you pay a buck 35 per liter for fuel, that wouldn't that be great? A buck 35. Even at a buck 35, now the gas is close to two, you're going to save a lot of money. On um, an EV, they say. That, especially with the price of gas, that you will save, you know, um, big dollars on the switch. That it, it actually makes money. The esti- Listen to this set. This, this, is, this is what they say. Get this. Like, I'm going to read you this. I don't, I, with gas close to $2, this group says that the savings could jump as high as $24,000 
$24,000 over eight years. Is that true? That's real, man. What do you guys think of that? Let me know. Call. I used to thinking of switching because a lot of people are. A lot of people are. Let me read you some text. We're, we're thinking about it, but I got range anxiety. No way, Evan. I'm good with diesel and gas. My tractors are diesel. No electric on that farm. I bet you there'll be tax credits, and I think it's a big deal for farmers. They've got it. They've got to really, really help. Like anyone who lives in rural Canada in the cold on a farm can't just switch to EVs. You're going to have to have massive incentives because you cannot wait around. Time is money. So great point. The carbon footprint of a new EV and associated infrastructure is significantly greater than the combustion engine. Does anyone talk about the elephant in the room? Batteries, man. They store energy. They don't create it. Uh, yes. First of all, I don't know if the carbon footprint of an EV and the associated is, is greater than the combustion engine and that infrastructure. I know someone said that. I don't know if that's true. Batteries do store energy, but you can create, you can, you can generate energy much cleaner than you can with gas. Um, Mar- um, what do we got? Mark in Oakville, go for it. Hey, Evan, this is actually pretty funny because my wife makes fun of me every day. She drives the uh, Tesla SUV X and uh, plugs in at night, $63 later a month. She's good to go 400 kilometers a day, whereas I just put 110 into a Mercedes Coupe, and that's going to get me through about three days of travel. So wait, so, your your wife. Do, so do, do so let that. me ask you though. Like so, you're both driving pretty expensive cars. I've no. What does the Tesla cost? Like is it, like is it one of these like eighty thousand dollar or fifty thousand? I don't. I, I'm I'm asking seriously because is it worth the cost for her to drive it to say like sixty bucks a month in electricity is tasty, right? That's amazing. Hundred percent. And again, if you're going to drive it, we all know what the cost of a full size SUV is today, so it's comparable. Okay. But, uh, and again, I wasn't a big Tesla fan until I started to drive it and the technology. And uh, it, it's, it's beyond any other vehicle. It's like driving a spaceship iPad. You know, the other thing about EV, I want people to understand, Tesla's done something that they have a totally different proprietary infrastructure. So if you pay the money to buy Tesla, there's 10 times more generate electric charging stations than for anyone who, a non-Tesla, right? That's the big bonus there. Absolutely. And with some of the Teslas, there is no charge for the supercharger. There's no fee. You pull up, you plug in when you're on the road and away you go. So are you, are you like, are you, so you would buy, are you done with, is this your last gas powered vehicle? Uh, It's tough to say because I do love the vehicle, but when I just, like I said, listening to you put 110 bucks in, I did the same thing two minutes before your call and it just irks me to know I'm going to do it again before the end of the weekend. Me too. I, I, I honestly, when it go like a hundred bucks was kind of my psychological breaking point. Wasn't that yours? Like, you know, it's like 80 bucks. I'm like, oh, cost of doing business. Once it was like a hundred and then it's just a ka-ching, ka-ching. And I'm like, what the, I can't even say it on the radio, right? I'm like, okay. <laughs> like, honestly, that was my weird, like a hundred bucks to fill up my car was like, something is gone awry here, Right. 100%. When I look at the uh, gauge and I don't see it even totally full, it's even more disturbing. So uh, she, can, she, she can laugh, and she has the last laugh when she nice. gets up in the morning. And if you're, not, if you're doing more than 400 kilometers a day, then you're driving too far, but uh, that's the range of that vehicle. All right. Thanks for the call. Evan, oh, my God, when you have no money and your car is a 2014 Honda Civic Touring and you own it, you can't do an EV, only on a pension. That's that. Listen. That's a real concern. That's a great letter. Evan, my next car will be a hybrid plug-in for city. 
EV, which has a range of almost a thousand. It's an expensive car. What EV? No, no EV's got a, a thousand. I don't think I have time, uh, Tina. Uh, do you have ten seconds on you, Tina? I know you got an EV. You live rurally. Just give me a quick shout out there, Tina. What do you got? It's not realistic for anyone that lives rurally. I, they can hydro can barely keep the hydro on during the winter. What am I going to do when the power goes out and I'm running on a generator? I can't be surviving that. Yeah, I, 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 Tina, you're 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 singing. Because I think for people that don't live downtown, it's a much tougher choice and it's a bigger ask. And they got to figure out the infrastructure, the reliability in the winter. Tina, great. I'm really glad we got that in. Oh, this guy's saying a friend of mine purchased a Lucid EV that has a range of 1,000 clicks. It's expensive. Okay, I got to check that out. 1,000? Can we fact check that? Evan, uh, not a chance I will buy an EV until the charging times are reduced and the range is increased. Yeah, I think that's going to happen. Look, we're all... We're all less than a decade away from getting an EV. Like, it's going to happen. But prices have to come down. And charging's got to go up. And the infrastructure's got to be there. We, it's like a no-brainer. And maybe there'll be hydrogen. Uh, man, that's a great conversation. Um, I want to know what... Have you joined post-high school a team? We're going to dig into that next. Making sense of the latest news. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Welcome back to the uh, program. We will go to Russia for a Russian blogger next who will not be silenced. You know, Putin has even banned journalists from calling the war in Ukraine a war. She, she does. She can, look, she's risking her life to talk to us and, and to do what she does. And we're going to get a real sense of what that is coming up next. We've also got the president of the Sasquatch Society. They think they found a footprint. I I love a Sasquatch story, don't you? But now it's uh, this morning on the call, our morning call with Samantha, our wonderful producer, Samantha Pope. Sam and I were talking. She's like, how's the weekend? And I'm like, oh, it's great. And I told you all about it was my son's last hockey game and and how emotional it was and 12 years of co-coaching and assistant coaching and head coaching and and all the things you do, <laughs> and Sam and, I, and we were. Sam played competitive ringette when she was in high school, and she was a high level ringette player. My daughter was a high level ringette player. My wife coached, and Sam was saying like she really misses being on a team. And so she said, "Have you ever run a Spartan? A Spartan is are these kind of they're these kind of uh, obstacle course races. You race up a hill, you crawl under barbed wire, you you jump through fire, you pick up things, you do burpees. They're kind of crazy. And yeah, I've done Spartans and I love them. And 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 I well, I did one in Ottawa. It was fantastic. And so we were talking about a Spartan because we thought you know once you're out of high school and you you end a lot of sports, what have you joined? Now it doesn't have to be a team. It doesn't have to be like a hockey or ringette team. You might join a book club. You may join uh, something. But, I, but it, it led us to ask, have you joined any teams or any clubs after your high school? And what are you joining now? I'm a great believer that joining things increases your social capital. And social capital is the key metric of happiness. Any study will tell you social capital, your networks of association make you happy. That's what all the studies say. So a team is really important. 1-855-633-1010, 1-855-633-1010. 
or 71010. Have you joined any sports, any teams, any clubs post high school? I got Samantha's on the line. Sam, why are you running a Spartan? You're going to have to crawl under barbed wire. You're going to get muddy. You're going to get dirty. It's kind of crazy. Why are you doing it? Right. So I, as you just said, so I was a competitive ringette player for many, many years, about 10 years or so. Um, And on the weekend, I was scrolling through Instagram. And it's funny because a lot of my old teammates still play ringette. And some of them right now are out west in Calgary, and they're about to play, uh, compete in the Nationals. Um, and so I was I was seeing this, and I really started to miss ringette. And I, I really miss playing competitively and just being competitive. It's been a while since I've, you know, played a team sport. So I was kind of sitting there thinking, okay, I, I want to do something that's competitive because I, I miss ringette, but I obviously can't just hop mm. back in on a team. So... Um, and I know last year I was kind of thinking about maybe wanting to do a Spartan race, but I, I believe it was, it was canceled because of COVID. Yeah. Um, but I love, I love being outdoors. I love being competitive and I'm going with my brother and I just figured it would be something great to do with your siblings. So, um, the two of us are gonna, are gonna do it. And I'm, I'm a little scared, but also very excited. I've never done something like this before, so I have to train lots. Just to, it, yeah. First of all, a Spartan, folks, just Google it. They're these obstacle courses. They are fun. And I said to Sam, it doesn't matter how, how good you are, the feeling, like everyone who does a Spartan or any of these kind of races, there's this real feeling of kinship. Everyone supports you. Everyone's like, you know, they're trying, they're encouraging you. It's like running a half marathon or a marathon or a 10K. It doesn't matter. Like, you you get this feeling. It's a goal. It's hard. It's wonderful. But I love that feeling. You're doing it right. with your brother. Your fr- now, can I just ask you while we're waiting for people to tell us what, what sports or clubs they've joined to make, like, what is it that makes you post high school when, when all that kind of organized stuff sort of disappears? one 833 or 7-10-10. Can I just ask, because I... I, I were you yeah. like a dirty ringette player, tough? Oh, my Were you gosh. a slasher? Were you, when you get competitive, are you like a speed demon? Or are you like, if someone elbows me in the corner, I'm going to knock her block So, off. Like, what are funny you? Funny thing is that when I first started to play ringette, and this was more in my novice days, but my nickname was literally Bam Bam Sam because I used to just <laughs> knock down. I used to just knock down players like I I would get really in there and if you know me in real life like I'm I'm not really like a mean like I'm not like a mean Bam, person. Bam Bam Sam not, really? Like you yeah. were, you were you were you were hells on the ice? I was Bam Bam Sam and even I know there was one game where I was playing ringette and there was um a player and a coach was yelling at her to like yell in my ear. And it was right before, you know, I was taking the ring and we were going to start our play. And um, and yeah, anyway, th- the player was just yelling in my ear and then I was just kind of pushing her and it was getting a little aggressive. So, yeah, I get I mean, I get competitive when I so when like I on this Spartan, you right. are going to get competitive. Like oh, that's part yeah. of it. I'm with you. I love competing. Like I, I love playing a sport. Uh, but I like to I like I love competition. I, right. Anything. I, if we're running, I like to compete. You know, I like to compete throwing snowballs to hit trees. Like I, any, I'm addicted to a competition. Oh my um, gosh. I love it. Okay. So let me get, so Sam's Bam, I love it. By the way, your new nickname is Bam Bam Sam. Love it. So Bam Bam Sam is back. She's a killer. Evan, I'm 25. I joined the Patank Club because I wanted to spend time with my grandmother. 
Oh, Patank. Oh, that's so great. Twice a week, we play three games, and I get to interact with people 60 to 90. It gives me a unique perspective I can't get with friends my age. I love that. Whoever you are, uh, you didn't sign your name. I honestly, I would put you and your grandmother on the radio. Call us. Can you resend us at 71010? That is the coolest thing. I have an intramural volleyball, a ton of volunteering, charitable fundraising, and I sit on a few boards of directors, all healthcare. Gal in my late 20s. Nice. Like post high school, you got to join. Ev, I race BMX bikes and was a member of Team Ontario from high school to my early 20s. Stepped down from racing to coach up and coming racers. Greatest time in my life. Can you guys sign your names? I love that. Right? Once you finish playing, coaching takes over. Oh, I love that. Evan, I got into bull riding after high school. I competed semi-professionally for 10 years. Are you serious? Bull riding post high school? Oh man, I I've taken my son, daughter, and wife to the bull riding. I love it. You are nuts, but brave. Hey, Ev, as soon as I graduated high school, my wife and I joined a bowling league. I still bowl, as well as coach youth bowling. Thirty six years later, says Todd. Like my uncle uh, George, my mom's brother, who's in his mid late seventies. He's in a massive. Um, He's a curler, and he just changed his life. Hey, Evan, I play on four slow pitch. Oh, slow pitch. <laughs> hey, Evan, I play on four slow pitch teams in Ottawa. Wife, kid, and dogs all come out. Kid makes a fortune retrieving home runs balls. We all hate the winter, so ball is all we do. Chris, ah, oh, Chris, slow pitch, so fun, man. Evan, I still play ringette, age 40 in Montreal. I've been playing since I was four. I also play co-ed softball. I need competition. So do I. I need it. My wife also played adult. Uh, I mean, I played beer league hockey. I played beer league hockey for years until I just was coaching. To, I was in the rink so much coaching. And then watching my daughter play ringette because my wife was coaching. She's a great, my wife was a killer ringette player. Um, that I just, I just, I had to get out of rinks. Like I could not play more beer league. I'll probably now join another beer league. Um, but I'll compete. I'll play, like I'll compete in anything. Um, I, and I love joining, like I have a running group with four other guys. We run three, four times a week if we can. Um, lately it's been less, uh, one of my buddies busted his ankle in the winter first accident, but like we miss that. I need the guys to run. I work out with my wife, the two of us, because it's, it's great. I'll be honest. Great for our marriage. Great to do something together. And, and you got to join stuff. Uh, I got a minute here. Gary, you got you got thirty seconds, and you go. Hey, Evan. Hey, man, what do you got? Uh, um, yeah, I played uh, hockey and stuff uh, coming out of high school. Injuries and in the uh, non-contact beer leagues kind of made me change my focus. So I joined a band. What do you play? I'm a I'm a drummer in uh, in a band out of London here, a cover band. Okay, give us. Um, I got twenty seconds. Give us the name. You might as well tell us. Uh, our name is uh, Swagger, folks. I love it. You got swagger, man. That's, by the way, that's a great thing. Uh, okay, keep texting me that. We got to take a break. We're going to go to Russia next. Hang in there. As your world changes, we adapt to get your answers. Now, more with Evan Solomon. There have been news about war crimes being taking place in Ukraine as the Russian forces have retreated. 
from outside Kiev and in the cities and towns around Kiev, like Buka, Ukrainian forces have found people with their hands tied behind their backs and executed two shots to the head. It's it's they found mass graves. Russia, of course, denies it. Oh, it's all uh, their their foreign minister Lavrov says actually we never did it. It's actually a plant by Ukraine. So somehow the Ukrainians executed their own people in areas that the Russian forces occupied, left bombed out. The Ukrainians come into those areas, found dead bodies everywhere, and the Russians allege it's the Ukrainians who killed their own people. Look, you can't even say the word war in Russia, but one woman has done it. Natalia Konstantinova is a Russian blogger. She has spoken out against Russia's invasion in Ukraine. It's, it's, frankly, it's, a, it's so brave what she's doing that it risks her own life. She risks arrest. She joins us from St. Petersburg on a special line. Natalia, thank you for being here. Um, How rare is it to speak out in Russia about the war in Ukraine? Hi, yeah, it's it's very rare. I can tell you that it's even, uh, it's almost impossible right now, and people are scared. That's the problem. Tell me what we're all trying to understand. We understand that the media is so... Oh, sorry. I lost you for a second, Natalia. Um, Keep going. Sorry, go ahead. We just lost your line. Yeah. Sorry, something with connection. Uh, So here it's like even between friends, you actually can't discuss it. uh, Like People prefer not to discuss it. And if someone... like. It's impossible to make polls nowadays, you know, because people are afraid to answer this question on the street. Because they think, I think it's related to the new law of fakes, if you heard. It's, uh, if we say something against Russia or whatever about the Russian forces right now, uh, they are, uh, we might risk 15 years in jail for spreading fake. So people are like, they keep it in mind and they prefer just not to talk at all. So, so... So how come you're not being arrested, Natalia? Uh, It's a a hard question. Uh, There there are many, actually, reasons why I think, first, the main one is I speak English. So most of my time, you know, I address to the foreign audience. And I know that they listen to me, of course. I know that they listen to... I give plenty of interviews, you know, to... They watch BBC, they watch uh, Canadian uh, TV shows, etc. But I'm not a direct threat to them. And if we look at Russian repressions in the past years, we see that they point um, specific people. So I'm not a, like an activist uh, like a Russian opposition, so I'm not a direct threat to them. But again, <laughs> uh, of course I'm afraid because you never know. Because we've seen also examples of people here uh, who weren't really like loud activists, but they're in prison. Can you tell, I'm speaking to uh, Natalia Konstantinova, a Russian blogger speaking out against Russia's invasion of Ukraine in, in a country where everything's censored, uh, people are being rounded up for protesting, you can't even use the word war. What, what is the, does, can you give us a sense of, uh, the the control Vladimir Putin has over the media there, and and what do Russians feel like? I've seen reports, Natalia, where most Russians support this 
They believe that this is right. They believe Ukraine is part of Russia. They believe that the denazification is what is right. Like, they actually support the Putin narrative. Yes. Uh, yeah, I can tell you that the majority, if we look at people, yes, the majority will support. But what exactly do they support? That's the question. As you said, um, the whole media uh, is controlled by the government. So it's absolutely like any TV channel you're going to open, it's propaganda. Every TV channel is controlled by government. So all of them just share the same thoughts. So people have no any other option. Of course, if, if they speak English, they might search, you know, they might find ways. But the majority, you know, unfortunately, they don't really have way to know the truth. And even if you're going to show them that, you know, there are some... Um, some news agencies like Medusa, it's independent. Uh, they post in Russian. BBC, they post in Russian, right? But people don't believe that's the problem because the whole media sphere is just filled with propaganda. Right. So, so we are reading about war crimes in Bucha, allegedly. Bucha. Executions. Mm-hmm. In Bucha, is that the, how you pronounce it? Yes, it's Bucha. Bucha. And... and... Natalia, I've seen Sergei Lavrov, the longtime Russian foreign minister, say that's a lie. It's actually Ukraine's Ukrainians that did it. Look, it's impossible to believe that after the Russian invasion. How do you make sense of that? What's the Russian view of of the alleged war crimes in Bucha? Hello, hello. Excuse me, you. Uh, I didn't hear you. You disappeared for a moment. I know Sergei Lavrov has as the 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 Russian. Foreign Affairs Minister, has denied it. He blames Ukrainians for doing it. What's the view of what's happened in Bucha? How do people believe that the Ukrainians slaughtered their own citizens? Uh, because the whole narrative, like uh, the whole picture that they show on TV, like today... Okay, we've lost Natalia Konstantinova, a Russian blogger speaking out against Russia's invasion. I just want, we're going to reconnect with her. Oh, Natalia, you're back. I just, I love having you on the show. I can't believe how brave it is what you're doing. Continue. We just keep, we keep dropping out. I know you're in Russia, so I, so I appreciate how difficult this is. Uh, So, sorry, go ahead. Uh, Something with connection. Um, What I was saying, yeah, that they they were analyzing. I wonder if we're getting cut off here. It's fake, you see. Go ahead. Go ahead again, Natalia. We, we lost you again for a second. That's okay. Uh, we're very patient here. Go for it. <laughs> I don't know what's happening with my connection. Yeah, so uh, they, they tried to analyze the videos that uh, all of you saw, and they say that, uh, you see, this person is moving there. They try to, I don't know how to explain it, whatever you show. Okay, hang on. We may get her back. I'm, I'm trying to... Natalia, you're back? Like, yes. Do you, you hear me? Yeah, we got you again. Go for it. So the, the, that's the problem. Like, um, they have even, you know, Telegram groups. We have our own chat, Telegram. Like, you have WhatsApp, we use Telegram. So there are even groups controlled by Kremlin who do this, like, debunking myths and building theories showing that the whole West is just faking everything. They were doing this previously. It's not the first time. They were doing this all the time with airplanes. Alola? 
Yeah, we got you. We got you. You know what, yeah. Natalia? Just keep talking. We, we You cut in and out, but I don't know what's going on, but I'll, I'll, I got a minute with you, but go ahead. I am afraid, yeah, we have issues with connections recently because of sanctions, you know, so that might affect our connection right now. Uh, so that's it. They just try to create any story and people believe in this. That's the problem. Like okay. they don't go deep so much. It's it was the same with Mariupol Hospital. Uh, if you heard the story when they bombed it, they also proved that you see all of this staged. They want to show that we are bad guys, but we are not bad. We are freeing the country from Nazis, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I guess I in the time I've got about thirty seconds. But people think, oh, uh, Putin's uh, grip on power is loosening. It's not loosening, is it? Uh, I don't see it's loosening. People start questioning things. That's what I see. It's true. Like they say, why do we need this? Like, you know, they see a lot of people uh, running away from country, like elites, and they ask, so why do they run? Right, Isn't right. It so bad? So that's the questions that start to appear, actually. They start to pop up, and they will start to pop up more and more and more because the, you know, economic uh, situation is getting worse. So, Natalia, what I want to do is let's stay in touch. I lo- I, we support you, Natalia Konstantinova, Russian blogger. We're going to fix our connection and we'll keep speaking. I think what you're doing is heroic and I appreciate it. We'll take a break. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Okay, let's uh, try to solve the Sasquatch mystery. Why not? The Sasquatch mystery? Like, how has... I mean, is there any wilderness left? How how has nobody in this world of drones found the Sasquatch? It's a real good question. And this is the question that is obsessing a group of people like Ryan Willis, who's the president and founder of the Trent University Sasquatch Society, who say, we are close, Trent. Uh, sorry, Ryan Willis joins us now. Hi, Ryan. Hi, how are you? Ryan, I am awesome. I love a good Sasquatch story. I, I, I you know, I was a tree planner for years when I was in university. So I would always oh, be yeah? in, in the bush and I loved it. And, you know, no sign of the Sasquatch. It just seems like by this point, I always think if the Sasquatch could be found, wouldn't the Sasquatch be found? What's your take on that? No, that's a very good question. And uh, my take is that these are animals that live in very remote parts of the wilderness, and they they are quite intelligent uh, compared to, uh, you know, other animal species that live in these uh, remote parts of the wilderness. So they, they definitely have done a better job of uh, concealing themselves from humans, but there are thousands and thousands of sightings uh, in, happening all the time, and they've been happening for hundreds of years. So, so, uh, so just on the record, that. you're talking about it, like the question of do you believe in the Sasquatch or you don't believe in the Sasquatch, for you, uh, you're, 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 you believe it. Like you're all in on like Sasquatch is not a myth, it is not a theory, it is not bad photography, it is not just a silly little, uh, you know, it's not like, you know, reenacting Harry Potter sports, it is like a, an animal. That that's another good question too, because for me, I would say that you know I do believe there's something out there, but then again, we haven't we haven't had a skeleton come in. We don't have 
a body in a lab somewhere that's that's being studied. So it's tough to say exactly what this thing is, but I do believe there's something out there that people are seeing. And why I do, do you believe, believe it? That. Like I'm, I'm intrigued. Like what? I, I, you know, how about me? I'm a skeptical optimist. Would I love there to be a Sasquatch? Of course, a new species. I would. I'm all over that. Do I think there is one? I think we would have found it by now. That's just where I am. What has led you to believe there probably is one? Well, I always had an interest in it growing up, but the, the more I studied and, and learned about it, talking to different researchers, the, there's so much more evidence I, I never knew about. And uh, I know it's been really compelling for me, uh, learning from, from all these researchers. And uh, it, it seems, you know, possible that in, in uh, especially in Canada, in, I'd say, British Columbia, you know, northern Alberta, um, like that's very prime habitat where there's really, you know, it's very, very remote and there's there's no one out in these parts of the wilderness, a lot of them. And in an areas where there are some people, that's that's where a lot of these sightings encount- or, yeah, encounters happen. So, so give so, us the uh, evidence that makes you, like, because, you know, there's this is like the Loch Ness Monster. Someone sees something blurry, they're like, we got it. Or someone sees a footprint. What are the kind of top three pieces of evidence that you believe, Ryan, says, let's take the Sasquatch thing seriously, because you and I both know, like, to be candid, a lot of people are going to think, uh-oh, this guy's a crackpot, he's a conspiracy, like, you get it, right? You know that, I'm not... Oh, I'm yeah, not... I, I get it, and I understand, and and, uh, and it's, it's very reasonable, um, and, you know, I, I sometimes am in that boat myself, you know, talking to some researchers that have a, a crazy theory or crazy, crazy point uh, that you know, just doesn't seem that plausible. And uh, for me, I would just say it's, you know, there are some photos and video evidence that are quite compelling. And uh, anthropologists and anatomy experts have, you know, looked at these and they've looked at many, many sets of footprints and say that, um, you know, it would, they're next to impossible to to be faked on, you know, that level of accuracy of what, a, you know, an ape, an ape uh, footprint or even stance and uh, the way the muscles are on some of these uh, animals in the photographs um, look like, you know, it's very compelling when you talk to these guys that are, you know, professors and, and experts in their fields. And they say, you know, if someone's faking this, they would have had to put thousands and thousands of dollars into, you know, making these sets of footprints that bend certain ways and, and can move and, make this type of indentation. But sometimes they're cranks, right? Like, remember there was the, the footprints at Bluff Creek? That was oh, yeah, a hoax, there's, right? Like, there's, there's a whole there's, bunch of there's hoaxes. Tons of hoax. There's tons of hoax. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely true. But there is a lot of other evidence. And along with hair samples, there's another key piece of evidence that uh, I'm actually trying to get the university to uh, let us test some, but uh, it's not going that well. But... Um, do you yeah, believe no in the Patterson-Gimlin film, folks? That is a 1967 film by this guy Bob Gimlin, Patterson film, a par- shot at Bluff Creek, that says this is it. Like, is that the big one? I think that's the biggest one, yeah. There are some other very compelling photos, but I think that's the, the biggest one. And do you, buy, and do you think that's, do you, do, you, do you buy that? Like, it's pretty fuzzy. Yeah, I mean, it is very old, but um, for me... You know, obviously, when I when I see one of these videos, I like I know it can obviously be someone in a costume. But when I talk to uh, some of the uh, you know anatomy and anthropology experts, and they say you know the the way they did the costume, like how would they have known to put that there and that 
uh, an ape like this, um, you know, would have had this feature or or um, uh, this type of muscle tone. And it has breast on it, too, which is also very interesting. But, um, yeah. So, so are you going to go out there and try? Like, most <clears throat> most of these sightings are northwest, right? Like, <clears throat> it's sort of a northern BC thing. So are you, or like Oregon, are you uh, going to go out there and actually look for a Sasquatch? Uh, yeah, I, I plan to, uh, you know, eventually when I can. I mean, we look in Ontario, but Ontario uh, isn't one of the best places to be looking for Sasquatch, but there are sightings here. So you, that's so great. Um, folks, you can text me if you believe it, uh, Sasquatch. Uh, hi, Evan, I have a master's in wildlife biology, a PhD in chemical and environmental toxicology, 20 years of working and and the provincial. There is a Sasquatch, says Phil. There you go. You got people who buy it. I just think... Like, how good can these things be at hiding if we've never seen them after? Like, they've been looking for these things for hundreds of years, at least since the 50s when it became like the crazy craze again. Yeah, no, I think um, I think a lot of it has to do with, uh, you know, probably some falsified reports near, you know, major population areas that, that, that probably, you know, aren't true. And I think it kind of takes away from... Uh, the the type of uh, research and, and quantity of reports that happen in uh, you know far more remote areas where it's it's much more likely that you know one of these animals could be hiding out. Well, I hope it is. I would love to see it. Um, most yeah. you know mainstream science says no, but hey, let's keep looking. Uh, just I got a minute. Do your parents say like, uh, hey? You're a fourth-year uh, student here, Ryan. Uh, can you focus on your studies instead of the Sasquatch? Are they like, come on, guy, get get your stuff together, man? Yeah, probably a little bit. But... <laughs> <laughs> and you're it's like, fine. hey, at least I'm not playing Fortnite. Yeah. Yeah, no. <laughs> Hilarious. Well, listen, man, listen. You're in fourth year. You're studying biology. You're the president of the Trent University Sasquatch Society. No harm, no foul. Listen, it gets you outside. Uh, I hope you find something, Ryan. Uh, thanks, man. Ryan Willis, president and founder of the Trent University Sasquatch Society. Go for it. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Hey, I appreciate it. I love it. I love a good Sasquatch story. Like, I'm all in if, if they could see it. I just I, I just think if there was one, we'd have found it. All right, uh, back to politics. Power play tonight, 5 p.m. Eastern on News Channel. I'll see you then.